Okay, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell. I am Liz Manichaud. This week we have writer-director Felicia Pride on the show, who's writer of such shows as Queen Sugar and Grey's Anatomy and director of her new short film, Tender, which we've featured on the show as our first ever Get Shorty. And also realizing that the work is everything and that the process of creating the work is everything, right? Because that's the only thing they can't take away from us is the creating. Um, they'll try to take your credits. They'll try to take your money. They'll even try to take the product sometimes, right? But they can't take the process of the creation. Felicia talks to us about how she got started in the writer's room, what it takes to write an episode of television, and how she stays focused on her goals in order to push her career forward, which was really amazing information, I think. <laughs> she's just one of those people where you're like, where did you come from? You speak like, like she's an inspirational speaker when she says like two words. She's uh, um, pretty astounding. But before we get to our talk with uh, Felicia. My breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You got mail. Hey, Ulrich. Hey, Liz. <laughs> We've got mail. Oh, sweet. What's, yeah. what about, what's this week? Okay, this is pretty exciting. I know you found this, but then I started looking up this guy, and he's very impressive. Um, so Richard J. Bosner gave us a review on iTunes with the subject heading informative slash inspiring five stars, October 1st, 2020. All right, Richard says, it's been exciting to see this podcast grow, morph, and establish itself as a wellspring of empowerment for independent filmmakers at every level. What I hope people will take away from the show is the ability to recognize their own film community, no matter the geographic location. Always remember that independent films are built on relationships, not money. Tell your stories, make your voices heard, and don't wait for Hollywood to deem you a filmmaker. You are a filmmaker. Congrats to Ulrich and Liz for championing independent films, their creators, and shedding a light on our love-hate relationship with filmmaking. Is Richard Bosner like a secret third co-host to the show? Because <laughs> no. he's eloquent and he should talk all the time. Thank you, Richard J. Bosner. Yeah, uh, so Rick Bosner is, um, you know, been on the show before. Uh, that's kind of, like he was on way back, probably like in episode 70 or something. I'm going to have to listen to it. I haven't heard it. Yeah, he's amazing. So he's like a local uh, film producer, but he also works in LA. So he splits his time between Los Angeles and San Francisco. And, you know, um, he's really well known in the Bay Area. And I think I'd, I'd known, I've known, I knew of him before he was on the show and then we got him on and it was great. Um, but yeah, he's, he's just an amazing guy. Like he met with me way early on when I was working on the alternate, like kind of before I'd raised any money and he gave me a lot of like amazing advice on like what to do and what not to do and how I should move forward, you know? And I mean, I was obviously trying to <laughs> hook him as a producer, but I mean, it was sort of clear that that's like not kind of what he does. And he was working on much bigger budget things like, you know, 5 million, 2 million, whatever. Feature two, Alric, feature two. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, but it was really, really valuable. And then I met him again at uh, AFM when I was there. Like he was there, you know, working on one of his projects, selling it or something. And you know, we talked a little bit and it was just great catching up and it was cool. Like, cause that was like two years probably later after I had met with him the first time. And, um, you know, he, he just told me how dead AFM was and then how like, you know, 
he, he was he was un, unsure how much like mo- movement I was going to have as a director being at AFM, but like he said, oh, it was good for you to see it, you know. But um, but anyways, Rick, thank you so much for the amazing um, review and for sticking with the show all these years and and, lis- and listening. I mean, geez, the fact that you still listen is pretty amazing. I mean, that was like four three years ago. <laughs> so, um, but uh, but yeah, also we should shout out our latest Patreon supporter. Jonathan Filipko. Thank you, John. You guys might remember John from asking a few questions, um, you know, a few months ago on the show. Um, and, uh, you know, he went and made the step, which is amazing. We nabbed him. We nabbed uh, him. If you would like to be nabbed by us, or if you would like to send us a question, comment, or suggestion, um, head over to Patreon, look us up at makingmoviesishard.com. Um, e- send us an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. All of these are actions you, t- you can take if you want to support the show. Leave a review on any of the places you can leave reviews for podcasts. Here are a lot of things that you could do spoken very fast and maybe in a poorly grammatically structured sentence. Lastly, make sure you jump over to our Instagram. Pick us on our Instagram page in addition to being able to follow us and see our lovely faces, you can check the link in the biome and you'll be transported to our brand new YouTube page. Uh, Please subscribe and you can see our video content. We're not just interviewing people over audio, we're interviewing people over video as well. It's fun to see our faces, it's fun to see their faces. We make weird faces, other people make weird faces. Um, Let's just do it. Thanks. Thanks for doing that. Uh, so, uh, so guess what, though? It's time for Get Shorty, Liz. Oh, I'm actually really excited about this one. So you make movies, huh? I produce feature motion pictures. I got an idea for a movie. So this week we have uh, filmmaker Parrish Leather, which is one of the most amazing names I've ever said in my life, with his film Long Drive to Yadkin, which like is a very interesting title. And it's also a very interesting movie. But um, before we talk about our thoughts on it, here's Parrish to talk about uh, the film. Hey, everyone. Over at uh, Making Movies is Hard podcast. The reason I chose to make a short film versus another medium, um, I mean, partly is just terms of resources and practicality. I would love to um, have made a feature, but um, just, you know, wasn't in a place to do that both financially and uh, creatively. I feel like I needed to get a few more shorts under my belt. And so this was really just a way to practice some things and uh, sort of get some ideas off my chest I'd been wanting to experiment with. And then when I came up with the idea, it just felt like a nice little short film. So it kind of, yeah, just seemed right, really. And as far as this, the story in particular, um, I just remember I, I came up with the idea of, or just had the thought of what if a barber was giving a guy a haircut and he died in the middle of the haircut. And that mixed with a couple other ideas, like the title came to me, just that title in general. Um, and then so I thought about Yadkin and I liked the sound of that. So it was really kind of all these things mixing mixing together were just interesting to me. And I didn't really think too much about it. I just kind of wrote it and uh, sent it to some friends and they all said good things and it felt like the um, the next the right next thing to make. Yeah, in terms of coming up with the funds, it's one of those things where I wanted to get a couple shorts under my belt before utilizing the uh, sort of crowdfunding 
technique. Um, and so I had made one short back in 2016, self-financed. Uh, my wife and I just used, we had some money in the savings, and so we just used that. And then same thing with this one. We shot this in 2018 and um, just tried to, that, that was another part of making the film too, was thinking, how can I make this for the least amount of money possible? So it was calling in a lot of favors. Um, I knew that we would only shoot for one day so that the people, everybody worked for free um, and so that I could not keep them for more than a day. Um, and one location was important. Um, and really the most expensive thing was the rights to the licensing for the music, music licensing. So that's really where the bulk of the money went to. Um, but again, yeah, it just was, you know, um, my wife and I had saved some money and we just, you know, decided to use it on this. Um, hoping that maybe the next one I'll try crowdfunding. I, I felt like I, I thought about crowdfunding this, but it seemed like, you know, um, it would have been good to go into a crowdfunding campaign with a couple things under my belt to say, here's what I've done um, for whatever the next thing is. And I don't even know if the next thing will be crowdfunding, but it just seemed when, the, when I finished this script, it seemed small enough and doable that, you know, we could um, use a little bit of our savings to make it happen. Yeah, in terms of when I made the short, what I was thinking, I mean, obviously, I think with a lot of filmmakers, when they make a short film or any, make anything, um, you, you kind of, part of your brain pictures, or at least for me, um, I'm thinking, you know, I don't know if anything's going to happen with it. And then the other half of me is thinking, oh, it'll get into all these festivals. Um, and obviously, the festival route is the hope in a lot of ways. But I had always planned, and this is what I did on the previous short, I've always planned on just releasing the film online. Um, and not waiting on festivals. Uh, a lot of festivals don't really mind it, it seems. Uh, I know some say that you can't keep it, put it online before a premiere or anything like that, but I've always been a fan of just putting work out. So as soon as I'm done with something, um, I'll sit on it for a little bit in terms of thinking of a good release date, but other than that, I just want to get it out there so people can see it. Um, and then if it gets into festivals, great. So I was certainly hoping that it would get into some festivals. It got into a couple, but not really, certainly no major ones, um, which is fine. Um, but really I was hoping it would just be something that I could be proud of because I had made, uh, I was very proud with the short I made beforehand, um, but it was a very small crew and it was, uh, you know, everybody wearing a lot of hats which is as it is in, on any, any independent film project. Um, but uh, with this one, I wanted to have a little bit of a bigger crew, which is still an incredibly small crew, but I wanted it to be, um, for me to be able to really focus on directing and not have to worry about camera and other things. And I got to stretch that muscle on the short film. So really that was another goal. It wasn't even so much what could this do for my career? It was more what could this do for me personally and creatively in terms of the craft of filmmaking. Um, if it does anything for my career, that would be amazing, you know. Um, and it, it, it did, you know, it serves also as a calling card, which is nice. I think that's really what... Um, Something that's very valuable with short films is they are they do act as a sort of calling card um, for when you send. I've sent the film to a couple of actors and they've said really good things about it and are interested in 
possibly working on something down the road. So that's always nice. Um, it's just something that you can show like, hey, this is what I have to offer as a filmmaker. And if people like that, they can hop on board. And if not, that's fine. Um, I've had a composer reach out. So it's basically just uh, served as a really great tool for meeting other artists and uh, filmmakers and hoping to collaborate with them someday. Um, I think that's a huge advantage of just getting your work out there because all of that happened online. None of that was via film festivals. And of course, things can happen via film festivals as well. But that's certainly, uh, yeah, now that it is out there in the world, um, I, I think just, uh, yeah, hopefully um, people coming across it and enjoying it and seeing something of value in it. You know, it's a little 12-minute short film, but... Um, you know, I've had a couple of people email me after seeing it and say really nice things, and that's always uh, really great and makes it worth it. So, I might have rambled, but those are the answers to my questions. And um, thank you guys again so much for showing this short film and talking about it. Um, I really, really appreciate it. So, Liz, what did you think of Long Drive to Yadkin? I thought it was the best short we've done on the show. Wow. I, I really do. I think it was the best short we've done. It reminded me, I mean, I'm a big Coen Brothers fan. It felt like very Coen Brothers-y. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like for me, I'm big like, time. oh, I am your audience, Parrish. Um, the color palette was just like so, yeah, so purposeful, so lovely, so interesting to look at because it was like so specific and pink and green and teal. And um, I love the writing. I thought the casting was amazing because not only were these real people who are great performers, but like also the main characters, well, who knows who the main character is? It's debatable, but the man who walks into the barbershop, his eyes match the decor. Like everything seems specific and perfect and choreographed um, and I loved the pace so for me this is like the exact type of film I want to watch and, and like I want to see the feature and I loved it I loved it all right wow. you look like you have a different opinion that, that's interesting <laughs> no I I didn't expect you to have such a glowing review of this one um and that was great I liked it as well. I, I really like the opening, um, all the close-ups uh, in the barbershop I thought were really, really cool. I loved the way they brought us into the story. I thought that was super well done. Um, I love the visuals overall, not just in the opening. I thought the way that they shot the film was really good. And, you know, part of it was that barbershop is extremely interesting, you know, and they, they picked an amazing location. Um, and then, of course, the performances were good. Um, but uh, what I didn't love was that there was no drive to Yadkin. I mean, come on. <laughs> if you're going to call a movie Long Drive to Yadkin, give me a drive to Yadkin. I oh, mean, come it's a on. metaphor, Ulrich. You don't need an actual car to drive I to Yadkin. Know. I'm always getting accused of being too literal and everything. But, um, you know, I just, yeah. And, and Yadkin is Yadkin. I mean, you know, I get it. It's fun. It's very Coen Brothers-y, you know. Um, but... Yeah, I don't know. I I, I liked it. I, I I get I get all that stuff. Like you know, and I get that. Like the uh, you know, we we can kind of pull together the story of this guy from you know what he says and from what the woman says on the phone. And I I get that, but um, I just wanted a little bit more of you like more plot. I like less yeah. plot. You like more plot. I've identified this difference between us. 
Right. right. I love I don't zero know. plot. I like I th- when like one thing happens. I think the other thing about it that I liked was that in the beginning, it's this visual storytelling that's sort of driving it. And then it gets into this, the, all this dialogue and, and talk. Right. And I think what I wanted was a visual ending to go with the visual opening. Right. Like, so you can like sort of be shown the ending and, and rather than told it, you know, through, um, yeah, through a drive to Yakin, for instance, or not a drive to Yakin, or leaving the barbershop and going someplace else and showing us something else about this person rather than just dying in the chair, you know? So that's sort of what I was hoping what the, the ending was going to be. But That's the feature. You know. ver- I, I mean, like, whatever. We don't know Parrish. We don't know right. what he's thinking. Sure. But I think the feature version is the barbershop owner driving the body back to Yadkin mm-hmm. and fulfilling this, like, goal, right? And come mm-hmm. on, that, how good would that be? It was okay. so good. So, yeah, I, that, I think, would have been what I would love to see is, like, you know, if the ending of the movie was this guy taking the body, putting it in a car, and then driving off, yeah, that, that would all Ulrich would have been like, whoa. <laughs> You'd be like, but, my hey, enthusiasm. Yeah. I'm not saying that I don't like this short. Obviously, I think that was really well done and, and super interesting and, and just, yeah, but I'm just saying. That's where you know my eyeballs wanted to see that. But anyways, Parrish, fantastic job. Um, you know, Thank you for sharing the film with us. Uh, if you guys have thoughts on a long, long drive to Yakin, share them with us. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm just glad that we, we're doing this segment still. It's super cool. And please, we're running out of shorts. I almost have no more shorts in, in our bucket of short films. So please send us some shorts for the bucket because you know I'm going to have to start digging them up myself or Liz and I will. We, we have, but we're going to have to continue to do that. And We should talk about your short one week. We should Which or one? one of your many shorts. I mean, oh, that's man. what we're going to do. It's like... Maybe that's oh why people aren't submitting shorts because they want us to talk about yours. They want us to talk about our shorts. Oh my gosh. Okay. Not mine, yours. <laughs> well, you have shorts too, don't you? Like, I like maybe one or two. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you have shorts. You just don't want to talk about them. I, I hear you. I, 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 I can read that. I can read that. Um, all right. Well, I think, uh, you know, without further delay, I think it's about time that we get to our talk with Felicia uh, Pride. Um, amazing. So Felicia, thank you for being with us today. This is super exciting. Um, let's kick it off with our first question about writing for Queen Sugar. So how many days does it take you to write an episode of television? Um, it depends on rooms, uh, but I know for the most part, we'd have about um, seven days. And then do you get to know the average budget of an episode ever, or are you just like writing a script? It- it does depend on the room. Um, and then also it depends on your rank as you move up in a room, as you become more of a producer, you definitely deal more with budgets and that sort of thing. Um, but you do have to, I think that was one of my biggest learning lessons from my first episode of TV is that you actually, they're actually going to make it. <laughs> so like, you know, we're so used to writing specs so you can kind of go wild. You could have car crashes and you know, all these things. But um, that was one of the first things my show where I was like, Oh, you want to, do a lot in this episode I, I had to pare it down because it's it is to budget and they are going to make it so you do have to write to production 
to a certain extent. You don't want to necessarily stifle your creativity, but they are going to make it. So you have to make it makeable and producible. Do all, does the seven days that you cited, does that, is that inclusive of all the edits that come from the team and everything that comes from production? No, or? no. and then you usually, typically with rooms, a lot of rooms, you write an outline first. You have a specific amount of time to write an outline, a few days. Um, and then you would uh, revise that outline typically. And then you'd write a draft. So that's strictly just drafting the first draft. And then you'd get feedback and you'd go into the rewriting process. How long does that take? Uh, it depends. It depends how fast your, your room works, but um, it depends how fast you get feedback from your, you know, whoever's supposed to give you feedback, showrunner, studio, production company, network. Um, but then you're working on things simultaneously, right? So you're still breaking additional episodes um, while you may be waiting for notes. But typically, once you get those notes, it's a quick turnaround. You want to turn that script around as quickly as possible, a couple of days. And then how big is the writer's room? Queen Sugar, we had six writers, uh, but all rooms vary, you know, depending on how many episode orders they get. So a lot of network shows that do 22, 23 episodes, you know, could have 12, 13, 16 writers. So it really depends on episode order. What do you think is more difficult, writing one of these specs or writing a feature script or being a part of a writer's room and maybe specifically your experience on Queen Sugar? I love being in a writer's room. I loved being in the Queen Sugar writer's room. I learned so much. I also didn't realize until I got into a writer's room, you really don't learn long form storytelling because you're always writing pilots um, independently. You never have to think about how episode 13 is going to impact episode two or the journey of a character from episode one to 13 across seasons. So I love that part of the writer's room. I love the magic that happens in the writer's room. You know, that we always had a lot of that queen sugar magic when the ideas just build on pop on top of each other. So to me, that was the easiest. Uh, I think features are the hardest. Features are a fucking beast. Um, <laughs> and I also feel like there's one form that you have to tell a complete story in a certain amount of page count. I've been trying to think about other forms. Not, I mean, not even poetry. Like you can go on and on. I mean, of course, they're like some three hour movies and four hour movies. But for the most part, you have that 90 to 120. You have to tell this story. And I find that really challenging. At least with TV, you know you still have space to go with these characters. This, this episode is not the end. Her features, man. Oof. <laughs> I think we both have so many questions for you. I wanted to take a step back because I remember, I think it was you and I, we met at a Chipotle like eight years ago <laughs> or something. <laughs> and like we're sitting there and I have my like massive bowl that should be for two people, but it's for one. And I think you have like, you know, like an iced tea. And um, you were you were just transitioning from working at Tug. Like that yeah. day you had decided to move on to a different career path. And since then, you've just been this like shooting star. Um, and I know you talk a little bit about empowerment. You have a newsletter. You talk a little bit about age and creativity. Could you tell us a little bit about like what led to all these changes for you? I know it's like a massive question, but I think it'll get us off on a... <laughs> yeah, no, no. Um, so for a long time, well, I started out as writing and as a journalist. And then I wrote books. Um, and then like publishing kind of became weird and... And I wasn't able to sell any more books. So publishing dried up for me, essentially. And what I did was I made the fatal mistake was I stopped writing. I needed to get a job, which I should have done. I should have got a job and continued writing, but I got a job and I stopped writing. Um, and then that job, I was able to then open up a consultancy for, so for about seven years, I was running a consultancy, which, you know, Liz, I was essentially an impact producer. 
Um, and I did that for a long time. So I got to a point where I remember I had landed my biggest contract two months later, lost that contract because the project shut down and I was burnt out. I was tired of chasing checks. And I was also, even though I loved my work, I was tired of being in service of other creators and not creating myself. So I came to a crossroads where I was like, I either I'm going to try this writing thing again, and this time I want to do it for film and TV, or I'm going to get a good government job. And the latter part scared me more. So I moved to LA at 35 years old, five years ago, and I needed to get a job. So I started very early on when I got here, I got the job at Tug. And I loved working at Tug. I loved being in service of filmmakers again. And I had one feature that I brought out here, which I eventually sold but really nothing else. And I wasn't really writing the way that I was supposed to because I was so into my job. And then I got laid off from Tug. So it was not even a natural transition. It was like a forced transition. And that I want to say that because I think that there are like negative implications to that, but it wasn't. I mean, Tug, as we know, is kaput. So it had nothing to do with you, but I just, anyway, that's oh, why no, I was that's like, not. I mean, <laughs> I, it was very, it was very devastating to me at the time, but it was what it was. It turned out to be a blessing in disguise or it turned it into a blessing. Um, and that's when I had to get serious about like why I came out to LA. I was like, okay, I, cause I was on the track to like continue down this distribution path. And there's not many women in distribution. There's definitely not many black women in distribution, but I was like, I need to recalibrate. And that was when, when we met was kind of the start of the time when I started to recalibrate and really focus on what it is I wanted to do. And I knew I wanted to write. And so that's what also, you know, I had this feature. What I realized though, as a writer, one of the ways that you can work steadily is in TV. So I also had to sort of start to learn the structure of TV. So I took a bunch of classes. I joined writers groups. I got a career coach actually that focuses on entertainment, um, Carol Kushner. So I could get just my shit together. I worked on my portfolio. So I went into like a rabbit hole for several, several months. And it was interesting because I, during that time, I was basically taking these positions that would pay my bills, but were also not public. Because that's what I also realized was that people knew me for distribution. They forgot I was a writer because I forgot I was a writer. So of course they forgot. So I started to have to like change the narrative too, um, that I was a writer again. So I started taking these odd jobs, including I was a, a, a coordinator. So I did impact. I was an impact coordinator on oh, a what? campaign. And I remember the producer who I think both of you, I know I won't say, but she was like, you don't want to run this campaign? I was like, hell no. Like, I just want you to tell me what to do because I have to focus on writing. So that's what I had to like kind of do for several months was just like get these odd jobs so that I could focus on writing and make writing the most important thing. And that shift both like from a practical standpoint was also psychological. Like I had to rekindle my relationship with writing. I had to let go of the baggage I had with writing. I had to say, you know, cause I thought I felt, I put all this pressure on writing that I had to financially support me. And that's not true. I have to support myself. And it's a, it's a nuance, but I needed it from my head. And that's when things started to open up and change when I had that sort of perspective shift and I then started putting in the work to match it. You said you, you put several months of writing and you're getting all these these samples together. You've got your career coach. Like, was there like one moment or one like meeting or something that kind of got you to the next level? Or like, I think this is like the, the, the moment that a lot of people miss because a lot of people focus on the writing. A lot of people, you know, get a career coach and do all these things, but not everybody gets to the next step. So what was it for you that got you to like, you know, into a writer's room or to the first step to getting to a writer's yeah, room? So I was laid off in October. That September, I actually was 
doing, I was um, selected for the film independent screenwriting lab. And so that, oppor that opportunity reminded me again, also why I was out here and also like being around peers who were writing, being in the, just the space of craft. That was kind of like the first stepping stone but the real stepping stone was getting into Writers on the Verge. So that's one of the fellowship programs. They have a bunch of fellowship programs, all the networks do. And I, when I first moved out here, I applied for them. I had no idea what I was doing. Of course, I didn't get in. I skipped a year. That's when I was like working at Tug and everything. So the next year I got really serious about um, doing it th differently. Uh, so like I took fellowship class, they would tell you about the bios and how to write the bios. Cause I didn't realize how important those were. Wait, you um, took a class on how to apply for fellowships or, yeah. Oh my God, I need to and, hear. And it. then how to write your own bio. For yeah. The, oh, yeah. Okay, because wow. the, um, the fellowship bios and essays are really important because they, they, at least this is how the networks look at it. It's like your opportunity to tell your story. But I also realized that through those classes and script anatomy who's, is who does the classes. That's where I take all my TV classes. Um, they show you how a cohesive pack package is important. So for instance, for my package for Writers on the Verge, um, I did, a, I spec'd Atlanta. So that was my spec. And the spec was about it was crazy too. I also took a big ass swing for my spec. Like my and my Atlanta spec takes place in Purgatory. Whitney Houston is in it. Tupac's in it. Um, so I took a big ass swing. Nice. But it also is about like rekindling your relationship with a father. Um, and so my bio and essay was about sort of my relationship with my father and how that impacted my writing. And then my original pilot is about a father daughter relationship. So it was all very cohesive package that I kind of learned in the fellowship class. Um, and of course, you know, those, those programs are so really hard and competitive to get into. I had no idea that that was going to happen, but it did. Simultaneously though, I was also trying to sell my feature. So I wrote this film 10 years ago. I've been trying to get it made for 10 years, came out here. Part of that reason why I came out here was to get it made. I attached a director. So I was simultaneously also like moving forward with that in terms of trying to sell it. And we eventually sold it to Macro and it was made and it was turned into Really Love and it premiered, it was supposed to premiere at South By. So I was had some things happening and pushing. So I realized that this is a place where you have to generate heat for yourself. Um, so yeah, so Writers on the Verge is kind of what opened up a lot of things for me. That's like such amazing advice. I didn't even know that there were classes for these fellowships. Um, you it's also, a big deal out here. I had no idea how yeah, serious people it's take everything. It. And I, I think a lot of us just like submit drunk and we're just like, <laughs> what a great idea. And then we're like, why? I didn't realize how important this that was. That was me the first year. It was yeah. so like submit. Like, yeah. That, that was me a few years ago. Uh, that's me every year. Um, you mentioned uh, the baggage that you had to let go of when writing, um, like the writer's baggage. Right? Can you explain that a little bit more? What what baggage did you carry around yeah. when you were writing? Um, because I, you know, I had some success as a writer, as an author. I had some success. So, you know, I started to equate writing with uh, the like my financial stability. And um, 
I also had because and so when writing or when publishing dried up for me, I, I was resentful. <laughs> I was resentful for writing. I also became very scared again of being a full time writer because it I had I had done it. I had some success and then and then I and then it went away. So it was this baggage of both the of resentment towards writing, um, the pressure that writing has to provide for me, and then also um, being scared of the there is some instability that comes with being a writer right so being scared to to go down that path again um and so i had to have that perspective shift that no it's not writing that is supposed to provide for me it's me um and it's it just helped my head wrap around things um but yeah that's what i had to work through it's like separating like the art and the creativity from the means to survive basically yes and also realizing that the work is everything and that the process of creating the work is everything, right? Because that's the only thing they can't take away from us is the creating. Um, they'll try to take your credits. They'll try to take your money. They'll even try to take the product sometimes, right? But they can't take the process of the creation. And so finding that joy again um, and, and embracing that joy and then connecting it to a bigger mission. like. My mission is so much bigger than Hollywood. Like my mission is connecting to um, telling stories that illuminate our humanity. And we think about the time that we're in right now, as my therapist reminded me, it's even ever more important for us to do that. So my mission is so much bigger than Hollywood. Like they can put up all these blocks and obstacles, but my, my mission is bigger than that. And so when I connect to that, that's what helps me to fucking deal with this nutty business, but also um, that urgency, that fire, and then also that joy. This is a kind of a random question, but where were you based before you moved to Los Angeles? DC. Okay, so you came from DC to LA. Yeah. And then I don't, this is also a very personal question, and I don't know if you mind answering, but how old were you when you moved to Los Angeles? Yeah, I was 35. Wow. 35. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I was not young in Hollywood years, but I feel like that wisdom and that, um, you know, the dealing with people for 35 years and uh, running a business, all of those things I realized came has come have come full circle and i use them as assets like my age is an asset especially in the room in the writer's room to be able to have life experiences to be able to understand politics and how to deal with people and all of that is an asset um you talked a little bit about your mission but i also know you as I don't know. I mean, I, you probably have referred to yourself as a mentor. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know what, what baggage that is, but it, like you do empower others with your newsletter and like just coming on here and all the public speaking you do. Is that part of it as well? Or is that just like a byproduct? Um, people are just inspired by you and they're like, come on. Or did you create the newsletter um, to build an audience for yourself? Can you talk a little bit about your outreach as an individual? Yeah, I think it's really a part of me. My mother's an educator and she is, uh, most of my family is our public servants. Um, and, you know, she just has dedicated so much of her life to um, doing exactly that, you know, empowering others. So I have that educator bug. I didn't, I taught for a long time on the college level, like adjunct and oof, the, the thought of it just makes me, <laughs> like I just, 
But I do like, I like the teaching aspect of things and I like being in service of creators. So I started to create daily in 2012. Um, I was still living in New York and it was just the way I felt like I, and prior to that, I had a newsletter called Backlist, which was all about black authors and black professionals that work in publishing. And it was just me highlighting them. Um, so it's always kind of been there. And um, sometimes it's difficult, right? Because you're trying to do your own thing. <laughs> and then, and sometimes we use highlighting others as an excuse not to do our own work. So I've been having to find a balance of being in service of other creators while also being a creator. I think I finally have found that balance. Um, finally, I still kind of struggle with it a little bit, but I just enjoy, um, uh, I, cause I think that when we support each other, it just, it just, it comes back to us. You know what I mean? It comes back to us. Um, we help each other build. We help each other rise. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all needed help to get to wherever we are or to where we ever, wherever we're going to be. So I think it's a, it's a really great attitude to have just to, to lend a hand and answer a question and, and be open, yeah. you know, and not shut off. That's kind of what the whole podcast is about, is trying to open up this, the mystery behind filmmaking Love and that. everything. I had a question about this because this is the thing because I'm sure you have a manager and an agent now, right? As a writer, I don't have an agent because you know we fired our agents. I was at CAA, oh. so I do have oh. a manager. It was like a strike or something? I guess um, it was a dis it's a dispute uh, <laughs> with the ATA, the Association of Talent Agents, um, and we the WGA just had a big win at UTA. Um, has come on board. We reached an agreement. Oh with wow! Yeah, so that was one of the big fours that came on board, so it was a big deal from last week. But I was at CAA, so my agency, my old agency still has not reached an agreement. So I don't have an agent, I have a manager. Okay, I guess the, the question was like a lot of, you know, I'm, I'm just guessing and maybe I'm wrong, but like when you sold your, your script and, and all that stuff, was that, did that have anything to do with like your manager or your agents at the time? Or was that yeah. stuff like a deal that you kind of made on your own? Like how did that work? Yeah, we were, unagented when we sold our feature then when i say we the director and i went into macro pitched it um went back another time then sold it and that sale helped to kind of get agents interested mm. um was the sale of that and then how did you get connected to macro so that was through network uh you know i really believe in the power of the network i feel like most of the opportunities that have come my way have come through network so uh the producer that we attached to the project had a project at macro um the director went on set at one time with macro was shooting the project and connected with one of the execs told her about the project and we were brought the wow. exec read the script we were brought in to pitch um yeah but also it was also like identify macro because i felt like so my the great thing about distribution is i think about packaging and i think about um you know who needs what. And at the time, it just looked like Macro could use a lower budget, um, not so heavy film because they had like come off of fences and mud bound. And um, so they just seemed like a really great place to, to try to find our way in there. So you, t you went after them specifically, basically? Yeah. Wow. Specifically, but also organically. They were on our list. So we had like okay. a list of places that would make sense. And like, how can we get into these places? Who do we know type of thing? Right. And then the producer you attached just happened to also have a project with them. Yeah. So it was just like good timing and everything. Yeah. Wow. 
It's amazing. Yeah, timing is everything. I mean, 10 years later, like, I mean, that's also why features is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long game. It is a long game. Absolutely. What about the Queen Sugar opportunity? That Did that come out of the fellowships? Did that come out of network? Or can you talk about the pathway to getting staff? Get, okay, so in between, right after Writers on the Verge. So in Writers on the Verge, I sold my feature. No, before Writers on the Verge, I sold the feature. Get into Writers on the Verge. After Writers on the Verge, I sell a pilot. Um, and that pilot was based on a book, the book that I've loved for years. Um, then, I get a, then I get offered a, a staff writing gig on a network show. But because I'd be a staff writer and it was a first season show, they were like, you have to push back your development. So I basically had to make a decision, like, did I want to move forward with my development or did I want to take this big ass check? I moved forward with my development. <laughs> and so I was in Writers on the Verge as a comedy writer, okay? The show that offered me the uh, uh, staff writing gig was an hour long. The one thing that Karen Horn, who used to run Writers on the Verge, told me when I got out of the program, she's like, look, write an hour long. I think you can write a light drama. It'll open you up for more opportunities. So I was, had to turn down this opportunity. I said, you know what? I'm going to make sure I have an hour long. I'm going to write an hour long. So I write an hour long, send it to my reps. Queen Sugar was looking for writers. So it was very traditional in that my reps, my reps sent my pilot to uh, Anthony Sparks, the showrunner. Um, Anthony Sparks read the pilot. I get called in for a meeting, but he had no idea that my film actually stars Kofi Sirabo, who's one of the stars of Queen Sugar. He didn't have, he didn't knew that at the time. Um, so he was like, you should be really proud that you got in here just off a read. And so that one hour pilot that I wrote in between of like uh, wanting to be like, I will not be denied. I need to make sure I have all my stuff. That was the pilot that got me staffed on Queen Sugar. So then after I met with Anthony, then you meet with Ava. And then I got the offer. Uh, I want to go back a little bit. So you're, you're talking about this job that you got offered and then you had to choose between your development and this job. Is that the, your development through Writers on the Verge? Is that what that is? No, or... I I sold a pilot through my agency, basically. So, oh, okay. yeah, so they got me into the room. I told them I wanted to pitch on this project. They got me into the room and then I pitched. Oh, pitched, that's pitched, what you mean. Sold it, yeah. And so with Queen Sugar, my development was further along that I then was able to, you know, be able to be staffed. And you mean the development on this pilot Yes. TV show. And then, and was that like a daily thing that you were going into a, a room working on or what no. was that? It's just, and that I, you know, it's one thing that it kind of irritates me about the TV business that they just don't want you working on other TV stuff while you're in the room. I get it. But it's also oh. like development is so slow and you do it on your own time that it's like really, you know, but that's really what it is, especially on a first season wow. show. First season show doesn't do not, does not want a staff writer working on something else essentially um, wow. so that's what it is so even if like a feature or something else or features anything, are like... exempt features are exempt. Oh, okay. so that's why when i'm in rooms i typically am working on features because you can write as many features as you want you can sell as many features as you want because they are typically exempt it's mostly tv wow so you uh ran up all this momentum and it seems like all these I'll, what I'm trying to think of a good analogy, but I can't. It's like sparks are flying. I don't know. Um, yeah. But a lot of things are happening. All yeah, that time. year, I want to say that was 2018 
or 2019, I can't remember, but I sold a pilot, sold a feature and got staffed all in one year. And then, wow. you know, a year, year and a half later, we're in the midst of the most insane time of this like crazy pandemic we're all in. Do you feel any sort of slowdown in momentum or are, as a writer, are you able to kind of work through this period or um, can you talk a little bit about how you're managing during the pandemic? Yeah, I'm actually in a room. So I'm in the Grey's Anatomy room. So I'm working, which I'm really, really grateful about. Uh, and I did, though, hit a wall. So the beginning of pandemic, I was still in the Queen Sugar room. So we did like my last few weeks on Zoom. Um, and then I had all this like energy. I was like, ooh, ooh, ooh. I released Tender online. You know, I started creative chats with my friends on this like IG show where I would talk to my creative friends. I had a lot of momentum, but I was doing way too much and I hit a wall. Um, and uh, that wall also kind of coincided with like the uprisings. So, and then I get into a room. So it was like, I really struggled. Like there was a week, two weeks where I could not, it was, I was, it was trouble getting out of bed. I just, I really, 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 really struggled. Um, and then I was mad because my capacity had been uh, robbed because of racism and white supremacy. So I was mad about that. <laughs> and so I got back in therapy, um, but then had to just show myself grace and compassion. And like, so slowly, surely my capacity is coming back. Um, you know, I'm, I sold a feature to Universal last year. And so I'm on the rewrite of that. Um, I'm working on another project with a colleague. So slowly, surely things are coming back, but I hit a, I hit a wall and then I hit an emotional wall. Um, so that, that was infuriating. Um, but yeah, slowly, surely coming back. So how did you work through that? Was it like, you know, just we're going to, to therapy or like, what was like, how did you get through to become creative again when you were like in that, 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 t that tough spot? Yeah, I mean, therapy helped a lot because, you know, you get to, I, I was at a point where I was like, none of it matters, you know, um, what I do. And she's like, no, like what you do is really important, which is kind of what I was saying before. She reminded me of like, uh, that storytelling helps people connect to their humanity. And one of the things that she said, she says, it sounds like you're disconnected from your humanity and what are ways that you can get reconnected. Um, and that's what I started to focus on is like, how can I be safe? Um, but also like see people. Um, how can I be safe and, and just reconnect with what brings me joy, what um, those sorts of things. So that's, that's helped. Um, deadlines help as well. Um, and just time. I just needed just to give myself time. So that time and that compassion um, and grace to give myself time helped a lot. Just a reminder to give me the name of your career coach, your fellowship teacher, your <laughs> therapist, your all your friends. Uh, they this you're amazing. You're so teamed up and like so, such an inspiration, especially in the midst of all this horror. Um, but now you're directing, right? You're, yes. you're you're writing and directing and producing all these things. Um, what? What, what, like, what was the first project you ever directed? Was it Tender? Was that the yes. first thing you ever did? And like, yes. why, wow. why now? Why Tender? And what is the future of Tender? Yeah. Um, so I learned more about the business. I learned that <clears throat> features is really a director's medium, right? Like a lot of times writers are 
as quickly as writers can be pushed aside, they are like <laughs> kicked out the door. Um, and that's, that's not right for some projects. There are some projects where I'm like, after I finish writing it, like, you know, have your way with it. But there are some projects that are so personal to me that I know I have to be involved from beginning to, to end. And one in particular that I had started writing was a story that was inspired by my mother, my sister, and my niece. And I, the thought of giving that to someone else to direct just seemed impossible to me. I was like, there's no way. Um, so I started taking a bunch of directing classes. Um, and uh, because I was always very... I had told myself, I had this narrative in my head that I can't direct. I don't see like a director, all this shit that I was telling myself. So I had to like, you know, work through all those feelings and emotions and classes helped me with that and actually doing to see if it's something that I could possibly do helped me with that. And then also when you just see other people who are directing and you like, I could do that. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I started to, um, I was like, let me try it, but let me try it in a really contained way. So Tender was written to be like a, a way to try directing in a contained way, two actors, one location, one day. Um, so I wasn't doing too much out the gate. And yeah. How did you feel after the first day of, or that one day of, of shooting Tender? Like what was your feeling as a, as a director when you walked away from that set? I was so, I, I couldn't even articulate it. You know how, I mean, Liz, you know, you've done so much directing. It was like overwhelm and like joy and like, what the fuck? I can't believe it. Like, it was like all these, and I had so much adrenaline and like, where do I, am I just supposed to go home? Like, it was just like, what do I do now? Because it was such a, such a magical day in so many ways. And also like something that, just a year ago, I said I could not do, you know what I mean? So that feeling of like actually pulling it together, because we also crowdfunded for the film. I didn't have any money at the time to be shooting this film. So we crowdfunded in the community to just supported me in ways that was also overwhelming. I couldn't believe it. Um, so it was just a lot of I couldn't believe and having to like pinch myself. And just a reminder to anyone listening, um, everyone listening, so many people are listening, uh, that we featured Tender as one of our Get Shorty segments a few weeks ago. And so um, it's one of the shorts that we, you know, that we kicked off. I think we kicked off the whole segment with Tender. Yeah. Right? Oh, that's mm -hmm. awesome. I feel so honored. Thank you. Yeah, it was the perfect, like, beginning of this of this new segment. It was so great. Oh, that makes me so warm inside. Thank you. And what's the future for time? I mean, it's uh, you're turning it into a feature. What what does that mean? And uh, what kind of feature do you think it's going to be? Is it? Uh, what is that? I don't know. I have no idea. That That's so no, but it's so funny because <laughs> I have no idea what the story is. Like so, uh, so we released Tender online during the pandemic because it just felt like I felt like you know I think one of the big things of festivals, one of the big advantages is being able to go there go to festivals and the networking and the camaraderie and the being able to see people watch your film. Um, so we couldn't do that. So I just, I remember waking up one day and I was like, we should release it online. And luckily I have a team who work, we work fast and are, is used to like my like ideas and just like, let's do it. Um, and the reception has been so amazing in so many ways I didn't expect that uh we would it would be it would be received the way that it has and a lot what i realized too is that you know we we know fundamentally that we need more stories with black women we need more stories with queer black women but 
it just really, really reconfirmed for me how much we need these stories. Um, and so many people, so many Black women, so many Black queer women were just like, we, we want more. We want more. I want it more. Is this a feature? So that, that sort of uh, audience uh, desire is what made me be like, all right, I want to try to see the feature. But now I'm so fucking scared. Like I am so <laughs> scared for so many reasons, um, but I'm working through that fear and trying to figure out what the story is. I have no idea what it is. I mean, I have some ideas because these two characters came from a pilot. Actually, the pilot that got me my uh, job on Queen Sugar these two characters came from that pilot. So there is some additional story already, but I don't know. But I, uh, what I do know is I want it to be uh, probably ultra low budget. Um, I still want it to feel fairly contained um, because again, as a, I think it, it could make a great first feature um, if done in a smart way. Um, so those are the things that I do know, but story, I don't know. I, <laughs> like, hopefully it'll just hit me upside the head, uh, one day. And I'm like, oh, that's what, that's what the story is. And why did you, I mean, I think I saw that you, you played like one or two film festivals and before you decided to release it online, um, I could be totally wrong. So please correct me. But is, is there a reason you decided to release it online rather than waiting to hear for more film festivals? Was it just the fact that, you know, life is short and you want to get it out there? Or was it because in the midst of this pandemic, we can't really rely upon um, those opportunities, the festivals normally? Yeah, well, you know, you know, Liz, as a, as a distribution person, my goals were uh, twofold. Yes, I wanted it to be a calling card for everybody involved, but I also wanted as many people to see it as possible. The fest film festival route is not the way that as many people are going to see it as possible. There was an opportunity where as many people that we wanted were at home with not much to do. You know what I mean? So for me, it was like, okay, this is one of our bigger goals. Um, and people are at home and actually have time to possibly watch this film. Like, let's take advantage of this opportunity. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about film festivals, um, but we still are in several coming up. Like we just, we are in um, Black Star, which oh, I was nice. so proud of. We yeah. got into Bronze Lens. We got into um, three additional festivals that I can't even announce yet. So the other thing is it's a short. A feature would be different, right? Um, but shorts, you can tend to like, there's not a lot of exclusivity they're looking for. And especially that the film festivals became online. There's not a lot of exclusivity they're looking for. Um, so it was a gamble a little bit in like, oh, you know, we may lose out on some film festival opportunities because we're alive, but so far we haven't. What was your strategy for releasing the film online? Like, did you do any, like, like try to get write-ups or reviews for the movie to, like, help launch it, like, on any sites? Or did you just release it and, like, share it with friends? Like, how did you plan Oh, no, the... we had a whole plan, let me tell oh, you. Okay. <laughs> campaign strategy. <laughs> Um, so we, so the idea too was, cause I knew I was going to be going into a room, like we had a month to really go hard. That was the initial plan. We, so I, I crafted a strategy that was month, month long, basically 30 days. And every week we had an anchor activity. So the first week, the anchor activity was the release and we partnered with Shadow and Act for them to release the film, which was the best partner. Like the numbers that Shadow and Act pulled for us were amazing. Um, and that press 
just that press was such a perfect way to launch the film. Also brought on a publicist because I believe in great pub good publicists. I don't believe in bad publicists, but I believe in good publicists. And she and I had worked on um, a project together. So she was on board. Um, the second week was our like screening with Q&A with cast and crew. The third week was um, a, a tender case study that I did where we had more than 300 people sign up and 200 people showed up for that. And then the last week, I can't remember what the last week was, but we had an anchor activity for each week. And then so our publicist, Jasu, was uh, simultaneously getting us press. We're still getting press, which was amazing. We just had a really big piece in the root, which made me cry. Like it was like amazing the way that uh, press has has come to this film and are, and are talking about this film. Um, and we also we we only released on Vimeo, so now I'm trying to I'm thinking about experimenting with windowing out YouTube, mm. like. <laughs> Like, is there a way that we can launch on YouTube that's interesting and different? And um, but uh, we reached our goals. So we had goals on views. Um, we had goals in terms of like the quality of press. I was so fucking pleased with how the team, which is Regina Holes, who's our producer, Amber Brown, who's the campaign lead and is like my right hand, and Jasu Sims, um, and Andrea Donna Roland, like all black women, how we rolled this film out. It was more than I could have expected. I, I was I was so happy. So I'm looking at your your Vimeo page right now and I see like you've 92 likes, you have all these comments, but you've not you've decided not to share your views publicly. Um, can you talk about that decision a little bit? Yeah, I mean, that was early on. I mean, I can tell you we're at like uh, 23,500 views. Awesome. Um, wow. So nice I actually think I will but that was early on because I didn't know how many views we would have. So I was oh, like, let me, <laughs> but um, thank you for reminding me because I do think we can share those because I'm very, very happy. I'm very, very happy. And they just keep going up, which makes me happy as well. And also like worldwide, like to be able to see people from around the world watching the film is amazing. But our, our goal was 20,000 views in the month and we hit that. Oh man, congratulations. That's, a, that's such a an amazing thing to pull off because like, you know, yeah, most short films, you know, you'll get to a couple thousand and then it's it, you know, <laughs> it's really hard to break, break even 10,000, you know, just, I don't know, a little background. So I've released a bunch of short films online and I did, my first one was a fluke. It got a bunch. It was like 25 in a, in a week or something. Wow. And then I never hit that number again. <laughs> like I basically, it's hard. and I tried so much harder the other times. Like I did like tons of articles, like tons of reviews, like all these different partnerships and everything. And like, yeah, you know, it's just, it's really, really challenging. So congratulations to you to, to pulling it off. And it's really cool to hear uh, about a little bit about your campaign strategy. Cause I think that's really smart to have like, you know, all this activity you're doing and then have like a, a, a milestone at the end of each week. That, that sounds awesome. Thank you. But it's hard. It's hard. Liz knows like, uh, and I don't take any view for granted. Like anybody that right. says they watch the, the film on Twitter or Instagram, I thank them for watching the film because you cannot take any, it's, yeah. it's a big deal to get someone's attention. That's, yeah. that's a privilege. I know we're winding down, but I have another um, vague question that you somehow turn into a productive answer, Felicia. Um, but you mentioned how scared you were about tender and it struck me a little bit because you're so astounding. Um, can you talk a little bit about fear, um, whether it is about tender or about other things? Like I, are you afraid of anything else? <laughs> is there anything else? <laughs> I'm afraid of a lot of shit. Like, um, 
writing my first studio film was very scary. Got through that. I think, I, but I think that fear, uh, part of it lets us know that we're alive, right? Because um, that's the brain doing its thing, trying to protect us. That's also what I recognize too, is that the brain is trying to protect us. They think, the brain thinks it's a wild animal, but it's not. It's just like getting on stage and talking a lot. But the brain is just trying to protect us. So I also have compassion for what the brain is trying to do. It's just trying to protect me. Uh, but I then have to let the brain know that like, this is not life threatening. Um, but but then there's also part of it. It's like, sometimes you have to like qu qualify the fear and be like, well, what is this really? Like, what, what, what am I really scared of, right? Because then I feel like that's the way that I can address it. Like with the directing things, like, what am I really scared of? It's like, oh, I'm scared that I won't know what I'm doing. So in order to do that, it's like, let me take classes. And then just having to take that leap, right? So for Tender, it is partly like, it's a feature, like, <laughs> like what? Um, so part of that too is like, okay, how, how can I prepare myself? So I've already started to like, I always have like my own film school, but started to enroll back into a film school that's focused on developing features. Um, the, a lot of the work, Liz, that you did on like, Jim Cummings and the short to feature like has been so helpful on thinking about that and, and um, planning for it. I also want to slow burn it. So my, I'm trying to think about the team. That's also what I want to do why I want to do ultra low budget. Cause I want to have control, creative control, because I want to be able to start working with the team sooner than later. Right. I want to be able to be working with the cinematographer and be very clear on things. I don't want to have to rush it. Um, so yeah, there's, there's those fears, but then like getting to like the root of the fear so that I can address it. So what's the process on the future right now? Are you just writing or are you trying to sell it? Like what's, what's the status? Yeah. You know, my manager, um, is kind of shopping. We're interested in partners, but I think I came to the point where I'm like, I want to own it. So I want to do ultra low budget. Um, I'm actually thinking about, uh, launching a Patreon for the development process, that would help to pay for <clears throat> working with a cinematographer, you know, before pre-prep, like things like that. Um, and also bringing people into the back of the process, continuing to build audience. Um, so we're also continuing to build audience for the feature as we are developing the feature, as I'm figuring out what the script is. And then yes, it'll be the actual script development. Um, and then again, trying to find partners um, and also I'm, I'm looking for like a mentor producer. I have some, some really friends who are amazing, who are producers, who I'm thinking about like going to, to ask for that. So that's kind of where we are right now. When you say partner, you probably mean like a production company, right? Like somebody that you can partner with to like, you know, uh, raise the budget and, you know, take the movie from start to finish basically. Um, well, yeah, definitely want to experience producer on board. Um, but I mean, more partners like producers, yes. I don't want a bunch of cooks in the kitchen, though. <laughs> right. My ideal financing situation would be myself and someone else. Um, so that's what I'm, that's what I'm kind of, and then partners to just bring it to, to bring it to life. And that could look all types of ways. Um, it could be organization like a center reach or something mm. like that. Um, or yeah, so that's where I'm at. And when nice. I say myself, I mean like crowdfunding, Patreon. Ra raising the uh, money. Bring, bring, yeah, because we, yeah. we're thinking about merchandising, some tender t-shirts. Like we have a lot of ideas about, um, and also an experiment, like what does long-term fundraising look like? Can we fundraise for essentially a year before we shoot?
Yeah. Yeah. You probably have to. Well, that's what my experience was. Like I had to, I fundraised for like three years to get my feature made. Um, And you know, it was really, it's like you get a little bit at the beginning and then it's super, super slow. You get a couple partners on like a producer or whatever. Then you raise a little bit more. And then for me, it was like, you know, nothing after I got that little more. And then at the end, we just decided to make the movie. Then it all came right at the end. <laughs> that, <laughs> it's, oh, it's that, and that faith you have to have, like, let's just move forward. And somehow the money. And I, We're going to yeah. do it. Yeah. Crowdfunding. I crowdfunded. That was, that was part of the plan at the end. And, you know, it was like crowdfunding and then like trying to find investors at the same time. That was like the little magic thing that unlocked the fundraising was doing those things at the same time. But it was, yeah. I definitely will do it differently because I I fund I crowdfunded and I shot a month later, never oh, do wow. that. It was, it was insane. <laughs> wow, 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 wow. Um, I have one last question. Do you have a question, Liz? Are you good? I'm good. Okay. Uh, so the last it's kind of a, a technical question, but you talked about going from the Queen Sugar writing writers room to the Greatest Anatomy writers room. How does that happen? Is that just um, like you get approached with an offer? Like, do you seek out to go into that writer's room? Is it like once you're like in a writer's room and you you do well, it just you get other offers? Like, talk to us about how that worked a little bit. Yeah, um, it it varies. So there, I think there are a couple scenarios. One, your reps are sending you out for stuff. Basically, they're sending your material to shows that are looking for writers. So my rep was definitely doing that um, just to see what was out there, and then she she'll hear about stuff, so she'll be like, oh, so-and-so is um, staffing. Are you interested? And I'd be like, no, or yes. Um, this opportunity actually came from a friend um, from who I'd known from working as an impact producer uh, and was like, hey, they're like that, you know, Gray's is um, staffing. Do you have a sample? And I was like, uh. <laughs> I thought it was a long shot. I thought it was an absolute long shot. But I'm like, this is a show that, yeah, this this could be something. Like it's, it's, it's uh in the zeitgeist, you know, it is a cultural phenomenon. Also, I was interested in trying network because I've been on a show that like basic cable. Um, so I was like, okay, I'll go for it. But I, I just, also, I don't attach the outcomes. So I put in the work, mm. you know, like prepping for the meeting. Um, my sister, and my niece, we were like putting up characters and like, you know, prepping for So I did the work, but um, I just didn't attach to the outcome. And if it's for me, it's for me. And it happened to be for me this time so but yeah that's that's typically a way or um yeah it's or you hear about it from friends you hear about shows staffing from from friends writer friends that's why it's always good that if you want to be a tv writer to to know a lot of writers because writers hire writers writers recommend writers um so yeah i just want you to teach us how to not attach ourselves to outcomes. (laughs) Well, I look at it as two ways um, because that the disappointment is too much to deal with like over and over again. So it's either that there's something bigger and better on the way, or I'm dodging a bullet. Um, Those are the things that I think about when I get a no, I don't look at it as rejection necessarily. Um, And then also this business, a lot of people just have no vision. (laughs) So (laughs) like, I'm just like, Oh, they're lost. Like too bad. Um, When they come back, it's going to be too expensive. You know, like I just, that's kind of how I look at it, but the dodging the bullet orders something bigger um, because that just means it's not for you. So, and plus, plus also we want something that we don't even know what, you know what I mean? Like we, the assumption that this is going to be great for us, that's, that's a huge assumption. <laughs> so we want something that could actually be 
horrible for us. Like, that's why I just try to let that go because I don't know what this experience is going to be. I just want the experiences that are for me, you know. But but the thing that's so wonderful about you is that you put in the hard work for it and you don't attach a bunch of, like, baggage onto the outcome, like you said, you know, which I think is huge because it would it, be easy to be like, oh, I don't care about the outcome. I'm just going to submit and see how it goes. But you're just like, no, like, I'm going to put, I'm going to treat it like I care about the outcome, yeah. you know, and put in all that hard work and put in the time. And then, you know, if it works out, it works out. And I think that's just, that's wonderful. You because know? I, I look at it as part of my craft, right? Like, right. I just keep getting better. So all of it is craft work for me. That's also right. why the, the focus is on the process not the outcome because the process helps me to get better. It helps me to create work. Um, and also I look at it as like, I get in front of more people. People are more exposed to my, my excellence. You know what I mean? So I think that's just like a great lesson in general. Cause it's like, if you don't enjoy the process, you know, why, why are you even doing this? Why you know? do? Cause I, but also I remember what it was to not be creating and I don't want that shit ever again. I don't want it ever again. Uh, well, you're um, a hero. Um, let's move on to the final five questions before I keep on just like, like throwing praise on you and just making Whoa. everyone uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> so, um, so we already talked about this, but this is one of our final five questions. What's the first film you are, you've ever made and how do you feel about it? So maybe just tell us a little bit more about how you feel about Tender. Um, I mean, I made a film before that where I was a writer producer. I didn't direct it. It was called The End Again. Um, and it was it was also an experience that helped me open back up to my creativity. Uh, so I feel nostalgic about it in that way. And what's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? I don't know the best, but one that sticks with me is that the director's job is to bring out the best performance in everyone. And, you know, beyond cast, department heads, everyone on, on, on set. And I love that as a definition of, of a director. I'm, I'm like almost afraid of this question. Do you have a goal as a storyteller? <laughs> I have a mission, you know, and that is to definitely tell these stories that are burning inside of me that um, are typically about Black women, Black Gen X women. Um, so that's very, very, very important. It is, um, it is, it is. Yeah, it's what guides me. It's what drives me. Um, so yeah, and then yeah, I have lots of goals. Uh, multiple shows on the air. Um, you know, one of the people that who I love what their empire looks like is Reese Witherspoon. Um, I love that as an empire. It's substitute directing for acting. Um, so yeah. If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? Don't stop writing. Do not stop writing. That was the biggest mistake I made. And it took so much out of me to get back to writing again. Like it was like a war within myself. Um, so that's what I would have told my younger self. Don't stop writing. Get the job. Don't stop writing. Um, and our last question we always ask is, is making movies hard? Yes. It's so fucking hard. It's so hard. It's so hard. Um, but maybe that's what makes the, the process um, that much sweeter maybe but it's so hard um but that's but but we need more <laughs> you know what I mean like we just have to accept that it's hard but we need more and more and more um yeah yay where can people find you yes uh you can watch tender movie at tendermovie.com we have a bunch of uh, bonus stuff on there a playlist um 
and behind the scenes videos. Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Felicia Pride, and you can find Tender Movie on Instagram at Tender Movie. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening, for joining us. Thanks to Felicia Pride for making this episode happen. Check out our website, makingmoviesishard.com, where you can find links to the things we talked about on this episode. If you want to get in contact with us, send an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at MMIH Podcast. I am Liz Manischel on Twitter and Liz Manischel Film on Instagram. Ulrich, where can you be found? I am Ulrich B on Twitter and Instagram. Please, if you like the show, tell a friend. Help us get the word out. Leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Sponsor us. We're looking for sponsors now. So, like, hey, come on. Come on board. Get the word out about your company to a lot of amazing filmmakers who listen. And, um, yeah, we will talk to y'all next week. Um, all right. Outro time. Yup. All right. Um, thanks for joining us. Thanks to, uh, li- hmm. <laughs> um,